0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you so much for coming today. Uh, My name is Alex. I head up uh, digital research and development at the think tank Demos. Now, I am delighted to introduce you to our fantastic speaker, Julia Ebner, who will be talking about her new book, uh, Julia is a research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, where she leads projects on online extremism, disinformation and hate speech. She is active as a consultant for the UN, for NATO and the World Bank. And this new book, Going Dark, shares the fascinating findings from her time spent researching the cultures of extremist groups online and how they are evolving now given the events of the past few years it's obvious that the internet plays a central role in the spread of political violence and extremism now and if we needed any further reminder of that you know nine people have now died in, in Germany over the last 24 hours now we don't know all the details yet but there are lots the lot of detail, a lot of things coming through there that feel very oddly familiar there may even be a template here, words that perhaps a decade ago didn't mean anything to us, words like incel, words like Chan culture, online radicalisation, conspiracy thinking online, all of these uh, appear to be present and are levers that are explored in Julia's book. We're going to hear from Julia for about 20 minutes or so, we'll have a bit of a conversation after that. Uh, There should be some pieces of paper or notepads that are right there going around, so if you have any questions, please do jot them down and I will ask them to Julia uh, at the end. I think that's it. In the meantime, uh, I'm looking forward to this very much. Uh, Julia, over to you.
0: Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, um, and thank you for this nice introduction. It's actually really great to be back at the RSA. I did launch my, very, my first book two years ago um, in exactly this venue, so it's nice to be back today. And Actually, I want to start by um, telling you a bit about my motivations behind writing this book or why I decided to go undercover as well. So when researching my first book, um, The Rage, I explored the interplay between Islamist and far-right extremists. And what was really quite, I think, one of the, the biggest takeaways from this research was that extremists of all kinds across the ideological spectrum have been really quite sophisticated in um, using tech, exploiting new technologies and innovations, becoming early adopters of these um, new tools to recruit new members, to reach out to completely new audiences and so over the past few years, I've been working at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue um, and we have great like, data analysis tools that allow us, for example, to trace back a piece of disinformation or a radicalization campaign, look at how they spread across uh, different online social media platforms or fringe boards. But one of the things I, I felt like I couldn't really get to was um, the human dimension. And that's why I want to complement that um, kind of day job work that I did with some undercover investigative uh, research into some of these movements that I'd been observing over the past few years. So I spent, um, in total, I spent two years undercover in a range of different movements from jihadist groups, um, ISIS hacking groups, for example, and jihadist bride groups, to conspiracy theory networks, to uh, female misogynist networks, or in general misogynist um, groups, and also white nationalist and neo-Nazi groups. And one of the things that were uh, really where I could really see a pattern across all of these movements when joining them both online and offline was that they use a very, um, very strategically formulated script almost of radicalizing new members. So usually it follows kind of six stages across uh, the radicalization process where you can see it starts with um, recruiting this is actually in German, recruiting, socialization, <laughs> I just realized, <laughs> um, I, I am a German native speaker, so, and I also did join, join some German speaking groups, actually mostly English speaking and German speaking groups that you will see uh, in the book and, and also in this presentation. So, th- so it started with, obviously, with recruiting new members, then surprisingly, huge part of that radicalization process was not really the ideological indoctrination, but really the socialization, Um, the creation of of countercultures, of almost of in-group references, insider jokes. They almost create their own language in each of those groups that I joined. And we also saw some of these specific language features come up in the latest terrorist attacks where we can really point to the different movements and networks that these individuals were radicalized in. So socialization played a big role in all of these. And then, Networking. We, of course, see an increasingly global community of people from fringe communities on a local level joining forces on a global scale to have an influence on politics or plan uh, intimidation campaigns against political opponents. This leads to the next stage, communication. They run very sophisticated, um, kind of slick communication campaigns across the entire spectrum of um, online platforms that we're seeing, from the bigger platforms to the more fringe um, forums. And then they also often then mobilized to, um, to real-world protests or to, uh, to bigger campaigns that they run online. Unfortunately, we've seen a range of also violent protests happening in the last few years from the Charlottesville rally, which led to the death of a counter-protester. And uh, the, 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 uh, the mobilization of the protests that happened in Chemnitz in Germany, where um, basically the protesters started chasing migrants in the streets. And then... In the end, there is unfortunately also often the last stage, which is attacks Uh, that can come either in the form of hacking attacks, again, using online tools um, and exploiting the vulnerabilities uh, that new technology have given rise to, or actually inspiring real world attacks, as we could see with the latest attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, but also in in the US, in in Poway and El Paso, in Halle and last night in Germany, as Alex mentioned, it seems like it follows a very similar pattern. And there are some ideological elements that we can see that are very similar to previous attacks. So um, going from here, I'd like to give you a few kind of snippets and examples um, of what the book is, what kind of undercover experiences the book is, is, um, uh, is talking about. My goal with this book was really to inform anyone who is on the internet or even offline about the tactics, the manipulative tactics that are being used by extremists across um, across the spectrum. So also to allow everyone to protect themselves from these tactics, but also to expose sometimes how they really are able to trick the algorithms to use them almost as a megaphone for their extreme voices, whereas in fact, sometimes it's really just a small minority that dominates the political discussions. And one of the first um, groups that I joined and where the recruiting process was actually quite interesting is the white nationalist pan-European group Generation Identity. You might have seen them feature in the news. They're a young, yeah, uh, young movement that spreads especially the conspiracy theory of the Great Replacement, which also inspired the, the Christchurch attackers and the recent far-right terrorist attacks uh, in the US and Germany. And they are a very young movement, so they're also very selective with the recruitment. And it was interesting that they had very standardized procedures for everything. So I initially, of course, with all of these kind of online identities that I built up, there was um, a big question around how do I create a credible profile? that also allows me to then potentially join these movements. And for for this particular movement, I knew that they were setting up their UK and Ireland branch in London. And I wanted to know what their next steps would be, what kind of campaigns they were planning to do. Uh, So I I reached out to them after already having joined various online groups, having had conversations with members purely online, to then also meet them offline. And I went through several interviews um, with their, their recruiters and their, their leading members from uh, Austria and also the UK branch. And then they invited me to their strategy meeting, which took place in an Airbnb in Brixton. And what I found really uh, quite shocking was the degree of, of kind of standardized branding that they had adopted to all of their outlets across Europe and how strategic they were about uh, tapping into, into local grievances with this universal branding strategy highly professional, sometimes even using marketing uh, studies or yeah, even academic studies on how to best communicate their extreme ideologies to bigger audiences, but then also tapping into different subcultures and tailor their communication campaigns to really reach out to new audiences. And this was something they talked about in the strategy meeting where one of their Uh, most influential figures in Europe, Martin Selner was also present, he's the one on the picture. Uh, The others are blurry, um, but he's a public figure, and he even gave us a briefing on how to, essentially how to respond, for example, to tricky questions from journalists, for example, are you anti-Semitic or are you racist, and also how to run these slick online-offline campaigns. Uh, This was one example when... um, Another example of a group that is very skillful in in also running really slick online campaigns and influencing even the political discourse is the neo-Nazi trolling army, Reconquista Germanica. It's a German neo-Nazi, um, yeah, neo-Nazi group on the gaming application Discord. And it's only one out of many. There are also British uh, trolling armies. They're uh, pretty much trolling armies and sometimes ideologically influenced far right or of other ideological backgrounds, groups that try to either um, launch big harassment campaigns, hate campaigns against their political enemies, or um, launch political influence or disinformation campaigns. And one of these was Reconquista Germanica, which is probably one of the most influential ones in Europe. They at a certain stage had 10,000 of members. Who were coordinating in this closed gaming uh, chat application to then attack political accounts on twitter or to run bigger campaigns to ha- hijack hashtags for example and again here the whole, the whole process of setting up a, a kind of structure that would be appealing to to new members who might not even have an interest in the political side of it but really, by, by for example, giving them incentive um, structures, they almost had a military like uh, a military like system where you could be promoted into a higher rank to, for example, to be a general or become um, yeah uh, become a higher the, the highest one was the the supreme commander, as they called him, but you could be promoted to a higher rank if you. Um, did a good job in, in carrying out for example a campaign against, uh, against a politician or against a journalist that reported critically about the far-right party in Germany, about the AFD. And their whole goal was to influence um, the political discourse which they managed to do in the run-up to the last German elections. Their hashtags were in the top 10 Twitter trends in Germany for two weeks and that was quite telling of how much influence they can have. Another case of quite an organized kind of communication campaign, again, with the goal of intimidating journalists was one that I faced myself when Tommy Robinson, the founder of the English Defense League, uh, came to my previous office. I was working at Quilliam back then and had published an article in The Guardian that explicitly mentioned Tommy Robinson. And he then stormed the office and livestreamed everything to his, back then, 300,000 followers on Twitter, which kicked off a big hate campaign against me and the organization. And it eventually also led to me being uh, dismissed by the organization. So you could see what kind of power um, individuals can have over an entire organization. And that was quite, um, yeah quite shocking as an experience to see how much leverage they can have. the uh, application uh, the gaming application discord that i mentioned it's one that has been hijacked by extremists but it actually serves other purposes it's more purely meant for for gaming uh, essentially, but many far-right groups have have created groups there because its infrastructure kind of lends itself to um, their exploitation. But there's a whole universe of alternative platforms that are even either being hijacked by extremists or have been created um, for the purpose of ultra-libertarian discourse um, to frame it in a in a euphemist way, or even for extremist purposes. And These range from from alternative social media platforms and you also get even crowdsourcing platforms that are specifically meant for campaigns, for example, to fund hacking or or doxing or intimidation uh, campaigns. I also joined, uh, one of my other offline experiences was to join one of the more traditional, or in my head, more traditional far-right neo-Nazi um, events there are, for example, in Germany they have w- some of the most, some of the biggest neo-Nazi rock and mixed martial arts festivals, and I went to the the biggest um, neo-Nazi festival in Europe, which happened at the border of of Germany and Poland, and in my head I, I just I really associated this very um, traditional neo-Nazi culture with, uh, not really with the online space, because to me these were people who mainly coordinated everything offline, who didn't really use much of, of the online platforms. But I could see when talking to the people there that actually a lot of, uh, a lot of the participants of this festival came to the festival because they'd s- watched MMA videos, because they'd watched uh, rock well, rock videos on YouTube that, were already, that had already very extreme uh, lyrics, but they were drawn to this event because of their online consumption. And this was also, uh, it was interesting to see this, this entire subculture that emerged where they can also then order T-shirts that are kind of from made from Nipster brands or what is called Nipster brands, Nazi hipster brands, in an attempt to rebrand themselves as a more legitimate movement. A lot of the neo-Nazi um, networks have created their own Hipper brands, or that, that don't use explicit neo-Nazi or extremist symbols anymore, but slightly twisted swastikas, so that they wouldn't breach the, the national laws in Germany, for example. The same is true for other countries. In the UK, we've also seen some some of these brands um, emerging among these subcultures. Then. Finally, there's, of course, the dimension of attacks, um, which I already mentioned at the beginning. And that was really one of the turning points, I think, also in the research for this book, was when the attack in New Zealand happened uh, in Christchurch, where a man uh, went into two mosques and killed a total of 51 Muslims. And um, it was, when I read his so-called manifesto, it was one of those shock moments where I realized how much actually of this language I'd already encountered in some of the online networks that I'd been investigating and a lot of it, as I said in the beginning, was really alluding to certain subculture jokes or insider references and this was a pattern that that was then carried into the the subsequent terrorist attacks that we've seen in the past few months um, where you you could almost call this a form of new um, inspirational terrorism. We saw a similar dynamic happening with ISIS-inspired attacks, where you had one copycat attack after another. And this is very similar. And um, I mean, we don't yet know more details of the attack that happened today, but at least some of the conspiracy theories uh, seem to be linked to that as well. And. Then there are also other forms of, of violence, and especially when looking into threats for the future that we should be aware of, I do think that um, hybrid threats, especially also the combination of, for example, hacking and real world uh, violence could be used as a potential mean to, to carry out terror attacks. We've seen some, some extremist um, groups, and among them also some ISIS cells, try to develop hacking skills. I was also in in an ISIS hacking group where uh, there was almost like a a teacher for 100 members of this group who uh, taught us the basics of hacking. And this group then ended up actually most likely being linked to the the hacking of hundreds of schools, school websites in the US. This was something in in all of these instances, whenever I saw a real threat or something being plotted in these channels, I would, of course, send that to the responsible authorities or security forces. But um, this was one of uh, of the moments where I thought, actually, uh, it's quite shocking with how how little skills you need to have even on a a hacking level or on a tech savvy (laughs) level and you can still have such a big impact because of course um, hitting the infrastructure and even if it's just um, websites that can have a big psychological impact and I doubt that anyone would want to send their children to a school that has just been hacked and uh, replaced with ISIS propaganda. Um, One of the last things I'd like to mention is the gamified nature of um, even the terrorist attacks that we've seen. Unfortunately, with the last few attacks and starting with New Zealand, um, this is again, this is a new form of terrorism that I call gamified terrorism. There is a chapter in the book as well talking about that as a first instance of a new form We've seen ISIS or other jihadist movements and far-right movements gamify their propaganda, Mm. gamify their recruiting procedures, but we haven't really before that, hadn't really seen any gamified acts of terrorism. And in this case, the the shooter even um, carried out this attack, live streaming his video from Almost what seemed like uh, to resemble a first person ego shooter video game, and then some of his sympathizers on these um, kind of gaming trolling but extremist subcultures on the internet turned his videos into uh, into uh, versions where they gave points for every Muslim that he shot and it was really it this spread and became viral in a very terrible way because it it didn't just Glorify the attacker it also turned everything into a game and of course games are repeatable unfortunately and people try to get higher scores So one of the first comments below the the next shooting that happened in Poway was get the high score in reference to these and this is something uh, that is of that, that is, um, a really big concern, and I, I know that the security forces are behind this. This is one of the dimensions of the threat that I, I would say we're facing for the next few years. The other dimension is the political mainstreaming of it. And um, I mean, we have, uh, especially at, at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, we've worked, that's why we sit at the intersection of working with policymakers, but also working with the tech firms to come up with solutions for Uh, the spaces that that should be illegal and really violence inciting content, for example, on the internet. But there's also a lot of room for the grey zones where we need to actually, every one of us has a role to play and has some responsibility to counter and tackle these phenomena in the online spaces. Ultimately, my aim with this was to expose some of the tactics, but also to show that there are still human elements that we can use as starting points for such intervention programs, that even among the most extreme extremes of the extreme spectrum, I could still find some common ground with them. I could still find a basis for um, very human focused discussions. And I think there's much more potential to not just look at tech heavy approaches and legal approaches, but also to use those human points as starting points. Thank you.
1: Super interesting. Thank you so much, Julia. Um, looking through looking through the slides that you shared and and some of the topics you you, you were talking about, uh, and thinking about some of, some of the sort of the work that I've done in this space, there was a word that I thought I really wanted to talk to you about with regards to this, and that's accelerationism, mm. and this idea that. There is uh, that the, the end result doesn't just have to be a terror attack or a cyber attack, but actually we are trying to move society in one direction or another, and we're trying to speed that process up. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Did you see that kind of thing through the? Yeah, slide? this is
0: this is interesting because it's exactly the bridge between the two threats that I I just described. And basically, it's exactly as you say that the violent dimension of the terrorist attacks, of course, always have the ultimate aim of of moving the Overton window of, of changing, provoking political action and political change. And um, ultimately, I mean, d- they are also they have been effective, even the jihadist attacks have been hugely effective in driving apart communities in polarizing our society in giving rise to far right extremist movements. And the, the whole idea of accelerationism ha- is is an idea of um, that's especially present among um, these white nationalist and, and neo-Nazi networks. It's essentially about accelerating these polarization dynamics because they see uh, they, they they see an imminent or they they perceive the world as being just uh, that we're just in front of a uh, an imminent uh, race war or a war of cultures, and so they want to accelerate this by staging terrorist attacks. And that's also something that came out in some of the so-called manifestos that were left behind by the recent terrorist attackers. So looking at these accelerationist subcultures, I think is hugely hugely important for the security forces. It's similar, in a sense, to some of the end-of-times kind of elements in the rhetoric of of jihadist extremists where you also you saw that they were using the argument that there will be a war eventually between the west and islam and that they wanted to accelerate that by staging terrorist attacks so it's quite similar to to that idea and that's something that comes up again and again that there's an existential threat whether that's to a certain race or to a certain religion or to a certain um, ethnicity and to accelerate that by by Using violence,
1: presumably that feeds. That, that, that's a theme that was. I mean, it's very. That was. That seems to be a central theme in in your first book, *The Rage*. Mm. This idea that, by with with these two groups influencing one another and radicalizing one another, um, that is in itself a form of, of of accelerationism.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's also that is something that at least the jihadists are very aware of. they very, in ISIS in some of the ISIS Telegram groups that I. Um, That I was in they knew exactly that with their terrorist attacks. They would provoke that reaction from the far-right that further alienates Muslims to then um, Be recruited by them because they would then see themselves as victims by um, And as victims of anti-muslim hatred that's rising (laughs) and so they knew that that what they were doing was actually um, Yeah helping the far-right to rise in order for them to have an easier job recruiting new people and Do they know
1: Do they know what's going on... You know when you phone up a takeaway, or you Mm. phone up two takeaways, and you hold the phones, and then they sort of talk to you? Do they have any idea what's going on in... do, do, Do the Islamists understand what's going on in the... Uh, in the incel communities, uh, the, that's going on the far-right communities. Uh, how, how do those communities co- coexist, or are they just completely vacuum sealed from one another?
0: You mean a different, you mean whether jihadists know about that, or you mean the different far-right communities? Yeah, so you have your the Venn diagram.
1: Yeah. You know, well, actually, is there yeah. an overlap, or is the overlap there just you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a good question. No, there is definitely an overlap when it comes to strategically important kind of critical junctions in politics or when events are happening, especially in the run-up to the US elections was the first time I think where we saw different subcultures not all of those but definitely the the, the white supremacist white nationalist subculture the misogynist subculture certain elements of the gaming communi- gaming tro- trolling communities and also some of the conspiracy theory networks working together because they had a lowest common denominator and that was their enemy of the, the left leaning liberals mm-hmm. and of migrants or Muslims which was their uh, where they all agreed on this is uh, that this is a threat to them. And it was, it was interesting and also shocking to see how this has evolved and how um, they've almost turned it into a pattern, a strategy that they've then also used in the European elections, where you could see some of these subcultures did cooperate uh, around strategic rallying points, like in the run-up to elections. Um, Yeah, the same is true for for events or mobilisation in the streets where with the Charlottesville rally in 2017, there was also a first kind of real-world get-together of some of these very ideologically separate Mm -hmm. and also geographically uh, kind of fragmented Mm -hmm. um, communities. So do
1: they learn from one another? And let's say the... the, Mm. um, whether the you know the Intels are learning from the white nationalist world of the base mm-hmm. or whoever it might be, but what about the other groups? So what about the Islamists, for instance? So they are, do they learn from
0: one another? Yeah, they definitely. That's yeah. That that is probably the biggest overlap between the Islamists and the far right um, extremists and the, the anti semitic conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. which are present on both sides. But the fact that they learn a lot from each other's tactics, and in fact. Um, they, Looking at the propaganda of, of the UK's uh, first far-right terrorist group um, that was banned in 2016, National Action, they used a lot of the uh, ISIS-style recruiting campaigns, propaganda materials uh, for their own propaganda, and even used some of their terms, like they referred to their uh, white jihad and, and uh, talked of a white sharia. So it was interesting to see them lending elements from the jihadists. And the same is true for the base, um, the US based offshoot of of the neo Nazi terrorist organization Atomwaffen, which has also adopted some of the tactics and explicitly copied tactics from Al Qaeda and ISIS networks.
1: I think they were planning on on shooting or throwing firecrackers at the Richmond thing recently right And and again sort of explicitly talking about accelerationism and the idea that if if there are two thousand people with guns in the street and we start throwing fireworks
0: yeah
1: things are going to start moving a little bit quicker has your thinking on these subjects moved a lot moved along a lot since you wrote the first book uh what's what's changed or perhaps what has changed even outside of your thinking in the last two years there's a lot
0: the main thing that has changed is that I feel like the topics have become more. Um, I think the interplay between the jihadists and the and the far-right extremists that I described in the first book is now taken much more seriously by the security forces. Mm-hmm. Since the first book was published, um, a l- lot more examples have actually happened where you could see overlaps or um, or similarities, and also the interplay between the two. Mm. And um, I mean the the. Uh, Mark Rowley, the former um, or is he still the the counter-terrorism chief of the uh, Metropolitan Police here has actually explicitly referenced some of these parallels and and this interplay and yeah, increasingly I think that there's more research also being done on on the different groups and how this cumulative extremism effect and reciprocal radicalization, how this is taking place both offline but also online.
1: So things would be good. Things
0: will be fine. <laughs> I uh, I'm, I'm actually. I'm. To be honest, I'm quite pessimistic in the short run. I still don't think that we f- we're fully um, grasping new phenomena, especially in the online spaces, how social media has impacted some of these group dynamics, especially happening in these fringe subcultures. But I'm quite optimistic f- in the in the medium and long run. I I do think that. There are first initiatives, and, and that you can see from civil society organizations that are tackling elements of the threat. And I feel like we're going to see more of that in the next few years. I'd love a-
1: to talk a little bit about about yeah. those spaces. I saw actually you had Minds up there, which and and, and mines is an example that's particularly interesting to me. I, I don't know if you, if people are familiar with the social network Minds, but in, in the way that Facebook, if you let's say you report a piece of content. Um, It will be flagged and it will go to a moderator who is probably somebody working in a warehouse maybe in in, in Bangalore or in the Philippines or whatever. And As far as I'm aware, Minds operates a jury system Mm -hmm. where if you flag a piece of content, that content will go to 12 other members of the community who will then decide whether that content... Is uh, is okay, which would be great if they weren't all Nazis. But, the, but, but it, it should, you know, it's an innovative approach to how we build these these, these online spaces and where. And, and what I'd love to hear from you is, is: Do you have a sense of what makes an online space hospitable and what makes an online space hostile to these kinds, mm-hmm. the recruitment, the mobilizing, and ultimately perhaps the, the, the attacks that come out at the end?
0: Obviously. But one of the one of the dimensions that play a role is whether these are ultra libertarian platforms like mines frames itself as a as a safe haven for freedom of speech warriors the same is true for other platforms like gap where they explicitly wouldn't cooperate with security forces or mm-hmm. with the authorities to take down even violence inciting content conspiracy theories so that that plays of course a huge role on whether there's any form of willingness to cooperate to take down violent content. If that's not the case, that can be easily used by extremists, um, even if it wasn't originally created for extremist purposes. The other thing is more about, I think, infrastructure, where I guess some platforms lend themselves either because um, users can be completely anonymous or pseudonymous, like the 4chan and 8chan platforms um, lend themselves to these kind of campaigns, also because of the whole element of trolling culture and gamified Gamified approach on these on these platforms, where you can easily uh, circulate extremist content, and then afterwards say, "Oh, this was all just satire, uh, just for the means of mm. transgressing uh, political <coughs> boundaries or taboo breaking." And the other platforms that are almost um, that are really easily exploitable by extremist groups are platforms like uh, gaming applications, chat applications like Discord, where I guess because of again, there's there are these all these strategic levels that you can build usually for gamers to communicate and to, to have different layers of communication, they are also highly, um, yeah, highly practical for, for these extremist groups who also, want to have vis- who also want to have certain members just on one level with uh, limited visibility and then the higher ranking people on the higher levels where everything <coughs> is coordinated. And they can have recruiting procedures where actually people start in a kind of common level space and then if you're vetted and you're accepted to join the group, you're, you're promoted to the next level.
1: And so perhaps and you, you build a, a culture on these spaces. I mean, when, when I think about f- specifically 4chan and 8chan, and you sort of look at the kinds of conversations that take place on those platforms, there's a real sense of pride, I think, and a mm. real sense of, of culture as to what has been created in that space, which I, I just don't see on a platform like Facebook. You know, how, mm. I mean, how, how many people here are on Facebook? Hands up. How many people are proud to be on Facebook? Right, like it—it it, 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 it feels like a, that there's something going on here, which where, where the infrastructure lends itself to building something clandestine or culturally uh, homogenous. I don't know. Can you talk to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, it's it, they also have a long history. Actually, I mean, Fortune founded in in the early two thousands was um, at the beginning of of this whole idea that trolling or um, could could be used just uh, just for fun and entertainment, and then it slowly became more and more politicized and more and more um, radical as well, or was hijacked by some extremist movements who then used some of these uh, linguistic elements, some of the subculture elements and imposed their ideologies onto the community. I was, I I, I am still surprised that there was not more of a, of a revolution or like a, a, mo- a counter movement against this to prevent this from happening. Mm-hmm. But um, I genuinely think that some of the members also that I spoke to on these platforms were actually intimidated themselves and didn't really, were scared that then in the end they would be hit by a trolling campaign. Okay. And, that's something where I do hope that we manage to at some point reconquer these places as pure places that are made for fun, for gaming, for entertainment, and not for political purposes. But we have
1: certainly seen a migration from... i mean, Actually, maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a migration from these major platforms that we're all familiar with <laughs> to the slightly more fringe, uh, shadowier corners. Is that a function of... Um, decisions made by by platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, to make these their spaces hostile to this kind of thing, and to which you know, is this a sign of success?
0: It's, I guess, it's 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 both a success and a failure. It's a success in. In the sense that we've done a study at ISD just recently looking at the effects of takedowns on the big platforms and how much of the audience actually migrates, online migrates to alternative to smaller fringe platforms. And there is definitely um, a trend that uh, big far right influencers, for example, or extremist influencers who have their accounts removed on the bigger platforms do have less, uh, they, their audience automatically decreases. Even if they switch to the smaller platforms, they have less of a megaphone that doesn't change that there's still a need to monitor these alternative platforms and these fringe, very extremist platforms like 8Gen that was now taken down, replaced by 8Kuhn, but where the the terrorist attack in Christchurch and also in Poway uh, were were live streamed and, and where all of this took place. And the security forces and policymakers have just essentially not really been paying much attention to these platforms. And I think this was now a wake-up call, these last few attacks, that we even if the takedowns happen on the mainstream platforms, and this is something that's politically visible, that's also, uh, yeah. But it's not the whole part of the story, and that we still need to monitor if they go into the darker spaces and the the smaller corners of the internet that are even more extreme and might even be more explicitly violent, That we can't lose track of them.
1: It's very brave as an author, I think, to do, to offer predictions, and you don't just make one; you make ten at the end of this book, which is yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah very, yeah, very, very brave. Um, but one of them I thought was was, was super interesting, um, and it,
0: I did make them on the basis though, of consulting ten, 10 counterterrorism experts. <laughs> expert, so okay. I tried to spread right. pass responsibility. predictors the, for the any that go wrong. Uh,
1: one of one of these is around uh, state-led yeah. terror. Could you talk a little bit about what what you mean mm. by state-led terror?
0: I mean, I have to be careful what to say now to be politically not like to not put myself into any kind of already. I'm actually much more scared of states than of non-state actors. Mm -hmm. I do think that we've seen some states and in particular China using um, internet, using data in a way that can actually be um, very much exploited to, to of course, to uh, prosecute individuals that are going against the state and especially the the social credit system in china for example where um, data has been used to almost build yeah to build a system based on which you get rated down if you criticize the government if you do something wrong and your entire family is also um, in also impacted by this because their score is also um, becoming lower and anyone who basically spends time with you might become involved so it's, it's almost a, it, it's a really dangerous system where i'm afraid that if we go too far in responding or in exploiting um, the the name terrorism that some states might go too far in using what's at their availability in terms of tools, in terms of data, to actually um, clamp down on, on any kind of dissident. Well it feels like you know, authoritarian
1: uh, states can just move a bit faster in in in, in 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 sort of regulating and thinking about how to sort of I mean here we've had this long running discussion about online harms over the last few years and the government has laid out a green paper, then a white paper, and now there's going to be legislation coming uh, down the line. Um, And it feels like, and I I don't know if you'll agree with me, that we are sort of almost inheriting a kind of authoritarian approach to dealing with things like online harms and and all these different guises that they take and that your book explores. Do you think think that's true? Are we at risk of... Some sort of almost over, uh, almost a, a, a backlash, a overall, a, a sort of a movement into authoritarianism in order to try to deal with these problems. Overreach, I suppose.
0: It is a very, I, I agree. It is a very, very sensitive area because we don't want to compromise um, universal values of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of uh, yeah, freedom of of expression or opinion, and I think some of the so of course some of the policies uh, do have that do have that risk without even explicitly wanting to be authoritarian in the approach but as a side product almost because some of the the algorithms are just not sophisticated enough for example to distinguish between what's Satire or what's just simply news reporting about a certain topic, and what's actually extremist. And we saw that when the anti-hate speech legislation was introduced in Germany, the NetzDG, that a lot of content was removed because they had so many false positives. And there was th- there's really a threat, of course, to our democracies and to freedom of speech if um, if this is not. Very if, if governments don't take a very careful approach to this. And that can also potentially feed m- even more into grievances. And the Farad has already exploited that grievance of um, infringements upon freedom of speech uh, as, a, as a form of mobilisation and as an incentive for members to join. So I agree that there is a threat. I still think that, um, that the online harms white paper of the UK government and that in general uh, removing... Content that is really just for the sake of, of safeguarding individuals and putting more responsibility onto the platform is the right approach mm-hmm. Eventually, but I agree that it has to be a very universally um, very clear clearly formulated approach where and clearly formulated on where the boundaries are
1: If before we will come back to that in a moment just a reminder that, that we'll have questions uh, in about two or three minutes So if you have your slip of paper to hand make sure you hand it to uh, I think we might need an extra slip of paper now. Oh, we'll send it this way. We'll it this way. Um, hold on. Yeah. Have you got one? No okay. good. All right, that's my um, I feel like we as a um, as a civil society, as a society, as when we think when I think about our politicians, um, When I think about the media, I feel we are very good at talking about what bad looks like and Mm. we are not so good at talking about what good looks like. What should we be aiming for? I know what we don't want to see and actually I think understanding that uh, is going to move forward leaps and bounds through books like, like the one we're talking about today. You also talk a little bit towards the end of your book about sort of solutions and, and, and what we perhaps ought to be moving towards. Can you perhaps talk about what, yeah. what does good look like here?
0: I'd love to see more. I mean, of course, the legal response is important and taking down explicitly violent content or explicitly harmful content is important from a legal perspective. Um, and also th- for the security forces, I think it would be important to really put a priority into getting more insights, getting more uh, expertise in these, some of these really extreme uh, fringe platforms and being able to control some of what's, what's happening in those really uh, far-right terrorist networks or far-right vi- violent um, far-right networks. But on the other hand, I would love to see more civil society-led initiatives, and I think we've seen some really promising uh, programs happening across across the world, really, but across Europe, especially with um, things like, for example, uh, I Am Here, a program that challenges um, basically hateful comments uh, beneath news articles it's even as simple as that i think trying to uh, reconquer the conversation and turn it back into a positive Mm -hmm. conversation so whenever they would see something anti-muslim or anti-migrant especially uh, coordinated campaigns happening beneath news articles they would uh, they would just post more positive positively framed content and like each other's comments so they they would get prioritized on Mm -hmm. facebook And or things like the Baltic elves um, in in Estonia, um, Lithuania, and Latvia, who are basically volunteers, people who spend their spare time debunking uh, Russian disinformation. So the the Baltic elves fight the Russian trolls, in a sense. And I think these initiatives can be really, uh, can be great because they allow us to to tackle these gray zones where policymakers or security forces just can't really do anything about that.
1: Fascinating. Uh, Can I grab the questions now? Uh, Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Okay, who's got the best handwriting? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we I have a question here about the difference between the offline world and the online world. The question is you know, is it enough to observe the online world? Or do you have to do what you did and meet these people in, in life and sort of try to marry these two identities? Because I think for many people there is a sense that there is some kind of dis- both a connection and a distinction between people's online identities and their personas and, and what they are both capable of and what they do in the offline yeah. world. How do you understand that connection?
0: Yeah, interesting. It was it was shocking to see sometimes how blurry the, the lines become and how some individuals even after the Christchurch attack happened couldn't really distinguish anymore between what was happening online as a kind of game and what was actually happening in the real world. Um, so some of them one of, them, one of the first comments beneath the Christchurch uh, livestream said, is this a LARP, is this a live-action role-play? Ga- role and I think that shows how entangled the two are um, and how much of what's happening online can also inspire offline action. Mm-hmm. And this, um, I, I therefore do think that it's important to also, um, of course, also for any intervention program to also go into the offline, into the real world. But um, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't want to give a recommendation to anyone now to go undercover in the offline world with um, with extremist movements. I think it would be a good start if we um, if we started applying the the civil courage that we show in offline situations. For example, if someone's attacked or harassed on the tube, there would be bystanders who'd who'd um, step in, mm-hmm. and we haven't really seen the same extent of civil courage happening in online spaces. So I think there is a need to also in our minds to kind of change that perception that the online space is completely separate from the offline world, to challenge that digital dualism idea, and to also see, for example, and that's also the the problem with some of these hate campaigns that are happening online, also hitting some of the British MPs most recently, that some of the people who are behind these campaigns forget that there are actually real people behind the online accounts that they're attacking. And bringing back that human level of also online spaces is is one of the things I think we need to do and that's also what I try to highlight in the book that even in these online communities you have so many human layers and people do automatically link their offline identities to their online identities and that's something we need to raise awareness about. What I feel like
1: I do feel like that, that is often a function of the the space itself So mm. if, if the, there is such a difference between Twitter and uh, so I, I found a fossil once on a beach and I obviously went to www.fossilforum.org and I posted my fossil uh, to this, this forum and um, and it was the most wholesome inter- inter- digital experience I've ever had in my life. It was unbelievable. They submitted my fossil for Fossil of the Month, they told me where it was, they told me what it was worth, one person enhanced my photos so I could see it more clearly. It was amazing. There was clearly some sense of a real kind of community spirit um, in this in this space, which you just I don't think you'd find yeah. out. Somewhere.
0: And this is great. This is the positive side of some of these forums. If it's about fossils, if it's about extremist content, and about um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, that of course, um, yeah, is is very challenging because of the the community that is built up there, and because of peop- how people feel almost a form of friendship and right. even love for for these people who turn into. Yeah, sometimes even family replacements or yes. friendship replacements, and you can see s- in also in some of these conspiracy theory networks, in the QAnon networks, or also in some of the neo-Nazi channels, people spend their entire spare time there. Mm-hmm. So they do definitely also replace some of their real-world activities with these online networks, and that's something I'm still I'm not seeing enough in most of the or w- when looking at digital s- education programs, we aren't really tackling. At least on a, on a national level, for example, we aren't really tackling these questions of what online spaces actually do to us as individuals, uh, to our identities. We're talking about lit- digital literacy, but we're not really talking about what does it do to group dynamics, right. to, to, yeah, to, these, to having, feeling part of an online community,
1: I, I think that's so so important, and I think the, the you know maybe your, your next book can look at what happens to to somebody when they do get caught up in these in the stories that you hear from people in the QAnon movement right. who are sort of saying don't worry about it guys like I've lost my wife family kids dog money I've had to move house but don't worry I'm still part of this conspiracy theory we're all good uh, it's astonishing how far yeah. people will. Will go that to us would seem it would seem bizarre, but for for them it's clearly a, a vital part of both their community and their identity.
0: Mm. It almost feels like sometimes um, these communities erase all other layers of their identities, and that's also one of the dangerous parts of any radicalization process. If the only thing you identify with is your whiteness, because you're in a white supremacist community, that just becomes. Uh, like nothing else matters anymore, and and you go in for the community if if you feel that the community is being attacked, and that creates a huge risk of carrying out martyrdom or terrorist operations, in the name of that um, supposedly endangered community.
1: We have a question here. I saw Taylor Lorenz, uh, who's a sort of journalist who, who covers sort of digital stuff, trying desperately to explain to a reporter on American television what a meme. Was uh, and failing, well, well, I mean, she did her best. But the, the point, point is, this is this word, meme, meme culture. Uh, I remember, they, you know, we memed a madman into the White House when Trump was elected. All this, mm. on, what, what, what's going on here? What, what, why is why is why are memes on the one hand this sort of this, almost like the language of the, of the internet, but it also seems to be play a really important part in in your work specifically?
0: Yeah, wasn't there also a similar? challenging situation when someone I think from the BBC also tried to explain shitposting yes. I think it's with all these phenomena with all these very recent um, kind of internet phenomena it's it's quite difficult I think there's also a generational gap of shit what, what's course. shitposting you have to so, explain yeah well, sh- <laughs> <laughs> well shitposting is basically just um, posting uh, content for the sake of, of trolling of kind of just posting shit basically um, it doesn't end, but it has become more political in some ways and some even parties use it now as a means of campaigning because they see that it's effective because c- it can go viral and memes are also part of of um, this idea that actually you can communicate a simple thought or idea in the form of uh, an appealing visual. You can turn anything into a meme. You can turn a political idea into a meme. You can turn a joke um, into a meme and you can you can change any picture by putting text or putting jokes inside that picture and circulating it. And um, it's now even, it's become even a strategy of, um, there's even something called memetic mm-hmm. warfare. And that was even something that um, NATO actually uh, considered doing for some of their psychological operations because it is working so effectively. Um, because you can, yeah, you, you actually tap into deeper emotions by creating a meme or you can, you can communicate a political idea in a very simple mm-hmm. form that can go viral. And, that's, uh, and so some parts of the alt-right and of these online extremist subcultures thought that the success of Donald Trump was thanks to their memi- memeing activities, to their memetic warfare, which, to be fair, I mean, we, d- we don't really know how much of an impact it had on, on the real voting behavior. But they dif- definitely did a good job at making some of these anti-Hil- anti-Hillary Clinton memes, anti barack Obama memes go viral. And pro-Trump memes where he's completely glorified and the same is true after terrorist attacks where you can see glorifying memes appearing on all corners of the internet and sometimes even be getting like, attention across the ideological spectrum just because they're so effective.
1: And it certainly feels like the dial has been moved on political messaging. We're just looking at what, what's coming out of, of all people, Mike Bloomberg's campaign over the last week. You know, Paying mm-hmm. fortunes to memers yeah. I mean, this would be unheard of 10 years ago <laughs> you know, even the last general election was a few yeah. example to that um, can, well, while we're on the subject of these sort of the, the, the difficulties of interpreting and understanding I suppose um, the, 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 this, this kind of communication style and the kind of communication environment um, and I think you touched on this a little bit earlier I'll, could you talk a little bit to this idea of, of irony poisoning and this idea that it's almost impossible to lay a glove on some of these, uh, on some of the ways, because everything is in a million different layers of irony, and if you don't like it, you didn't get the joke or you yeah. just you don't understand. And it, as a result, it becomes so, so difficult to. You know, you saw the uh, the, the the memorabilia or the, or the hats and so on. It's like you know, yeah. we're not. It's not. It's not Hitler. You know, it's it, it's it's just it's just a joke. Yeah. How on earth do you fight this?
0: It's it's difficult on so many levels because also that means that any kind of um, algorithmic detection attempts are kind of doomed to fail because it's so difficult to spot these satirical elements. But um, for example, the the neo-Nazi trolling army, Reconquista Germanica, which clearly had Holocaust denial materials, even violence inciting materials in their um, in, in shared in being shared in their group, they uh, then after allegations being made by the media by the security forces after some of this was uncovered, they um, then included a banner on their platform saying, "This is just a satirical project," and. It's the problem is it's, it's hard to challenge that because, of course, everything can be turned into a joke, and we have the freedom of. of like, I mean, it's also it's a question about what can still be considered art, and where should we draw the boundaries? And that is definitely something um, that the alt right has been using very effectively, and they've also even co- sometimes copied some of the um, the satirical kind of tactics and and the communication strategies that were traditionally rather used by by leftist movements, by um by movements that were, of course, more in favor of, of liberalism, of, um, yeah, of, of social progress. And now they've turned this into, into something, into weapons that they can use to spread um, far-right extremist ideologies.
1: Fascinating. One more question before we wrap up. We've had a few here f- which are talking around about what an effective government intervention would look like, but also what... To, to what extent we are seeing just a pattern of the of, of the excluded and the vulnerable and the poor being dragged into these into these movements through lack of alternatives? Um, where does the internet rank? Maybe that's a stupid way to look at it. Where where does the internet sit in the grand scheme of of of, of people sort of becoming radicalised and falling victim to extremism?
0: That's also a very good question, because I don't think we should put all the blame on the internet, of course. Um, uh, it's I mean it's also allowing us to make much faster transactions. Uh, it's taking a lot of hassle from our daily lives, but I d- it's definitely been acting as an accelerator mm-hmm. to dynamics. It can't really be blamed as being the root cause, but it has the way that a lot of the business models of the big tech firms work, the way that the algorithms promote um, explicitly um, kind of extreme content, even violent content sometimes because of the way that these these pieces of content capture our attention and because the way that um, these algorithms work are made to make us um, stay on the platform as the longest possible. So anything that taps into these deep emotions is given priority just on the basis of how how yeah how, how the infrastructure works and this has definitely speeded up some of the processes not just of radicalization but also of addictions loneliness phenomena that are have already been present of course forever without the online space but it has acted as an accelerator um, yeah i i honestly also having spent so much time in some of these online echo chambers I really think that one of the key challenges will be to address these different subcultures in very nuanced ways and to find new intervention approaches to, um, to start looking at, at some of these subcultures as something that does have an offline impact.
1: Super, super interesting. We could go day. Thank you so much for those questions. They were excellent. Um, if you're keen to explore this further, I can't recommend the book enough. You'll be able to pick up a copy in the forum, uh, in the foyer outside, I should say. Um, do check out the Fossil Forum. And um, I, yeah, last but not least, can we just have a round of applause for Julia? Thank you so, so much.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.